Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I'm joined by William Pomerantz, uh, the deputy director of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars and the author of the recent book, Law and the Russian State, Russia's Legal Evolution from Peter the Great to Vladimir Putin. We talk about the history of Russian law, Russian legality, and the role of the legal system in contemporary Russia. Hope you enjoy. Let's get started. I am joined in the studio today by William Pomerantz uh, from the Wilson Center. Uh, Will, thanks for joining us. Great pleasure to be here. So um, for Americans who might not have a good grounding in Russian law, um, there's often a perception that Russia is a place that does not have rule of law. So what role does law play in Russia? Why did you write a book about it? Well, I've invested a lifetime of studying it, so I was fortunate enough to be asked to write a book about it. And so I decided to collectively put my thoughts down on paper. It is true that Russia does not have the rule of law, uh, but the rule of law is something that is uniquely, I think, Western. Mm -hmm. um, and it involves certain characteristics, accountability, equality, and so forth. Um, Russia has never aspired to the rule of law from Peter the Great through Vladimir Putin. And that's why instead of uh, investigating the evolution of Russian law and the rule of law, I investigate the evolution of Russian legality. Okay. And Could you explain the difference? Well, again, rule of law takes into account natural law principles. Uh, it, it means essentially that the state itself is bound by its own laws. Mm -hmm. And there are different approaches to that. There's the continental approach. There's the common law approach. There are different ways by which the state is bound by its own laws. What I argue is that whatever period you look at, whether it be the imperial, the Soviet, or the post-Soviet, uh, the Russian state, and namely the ruler, has not been bound by its own laws, but nevertheless has pursued a policy of legality which other historians have defined as law-abidingness. Mm -hmm. And that means there's a belief that Russians need to observe the law and fulfill the law. And there's plenty of legislation and legal codes where you can go and find the law. What it means, though, is whereas the citizens are required to observe the law, the state itself or the ruling state power and that's a, also another unique term mm -hmm. in Russian legal history. Gosudostrinev lost. Mm -hmm. State power. And the notion of state power is not restrained uh, and isn't, isn't bound by the nation's own laws. And you can see that from czars, general secretaries, and presidents today. Okay. Well, let's talk about that historical continuity um, because – in principle, the Tsarist government was absolutist. Um, yet, if you read a lot of the modern history of, of Tsarist administration, you find that it was often mediated and negotiated with various other power sources, whether these were regional elites or the nobility or uh, whomever. Um, in the Soviet period, right, I mean, you had uh, different levels of uh, 
I guess the Russian term praizvol, um, not tyranny exactly, but uh, the unboundedness by by laws and rules. And in the post-Soviet period, it seems there was an attempt to actually create something resembling uh, more than just legality, right? I mean, you had a Duma, you have a constitution, you have um, you know, more of a positive law attempts to constrain state power. And yet, uh, in practice, it seems that we've ended up recreating some of the uh, patterns and, and behaviors, even if not the formal institutions of an earlier period? Well, Russian law, especially the imperial period, uh, combines multiple traits. Uh, it is autocratic. It is arbitrary. And yet at the same time, it is during this period that Russia experiences the golden age of Russian law, where it produces world-class legal philosophers, mm -hmm. first-rate defense attorneys, and a active debate as to how at least civil law, economic law should develop along with property rights, mm -hmm. strong property rights exist in the Tsarist period as well. So yes, you do have this notion of arbitrariness, um, but that is found by a distinctive feature of the autocratic period, which is transferred to both to the Soviet and the Soviet period. And that is in addition to laws that are written, statutes, uh, you also have the power of the ruler to issue decrees, that his and her word, in fact, becomes law. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Tsarist, Soviet, and post-Soviet period, you will see this continuity, that in addition to all regimes trying to create certain statutes and s certain codes where you can find the law, you also have this ability by both the ruler and, quite frankly, the bureaucracy to issue its own decisions, its own decrees mm -hmm. that are also a source of law. So therefore, you have these multiple systems, as it were, working within the autocracy. And you can also say that to a certain extent it exists in the Soviet period, except that in the Soviet period, you really don't have defined property rights and commercial law. And so you don't have that ability of what I refer to as the private law sector, mm -hmm. contracts, family law, etc., to actually have an ability to interact and limit the public law powers of the state. That's what makes the Soviet period so distinct. What occurred in 1993 is a return of property rights and private law value principles. And at least originally, uh, it was perceived uh, by Yeltsin's reformers that these private law rights would serve as a check on the public law powers of the state. In addition, as you mentioned, they passed uh, the 1993 Constitution, uh, which had a whole long list of civil liberties, uh, an attempt to identify the notion, uh, a notion of federalism where it would assign powers to the region, and aspired to, yes, the rule of law state. What we've seen over the last 20 years is a move uh, away from that. And that's because the Constitution also had these autocratic principles in it as well. And it was unclear, even after Yeltsin's uh, nine years in power, where the Russian state was going to go. But what Vladimir Putin has accomplished is he's taken those traditional status principles that are in the Constitution, uh, including uh, notions of state power and the right to divide power by, by treaty amongst regions and so forth. He's taken traditional 
Russian legal principles and restored the state. And so when you look at what Putin has done, he has, he, he has not necessarily presided over a lawless state in the sense that there are whole sector, sections of, the, of, of economic activity and social life that are regulated by law. But he's also emphasized a traditional pattern of Russian law, and that is the ruler's law, word is, is law, and that the most important uh, element of success of state building is self-preservation. And since those are Self-preservation kind of, of the state. Of the state, exactly. And so since those, those attitudes have reemerged as kind of the founding principles of post-Soviet Russian law, there you can find the continuity from the imperial Soviet and post-Soviet periods. So how unique is this approach? I mean, how particularly Russian is it? Because, of course, <clears throat> Russia, going back to the imperial period, has taken part in trans-European and transcontinental debates about politics and law and philosophy. Um, and I think at different periods, there were greater or lesser influences from you know, German cameralists or French philosophes. Um, how important was that in shaping the Russian legal tradition or how unique is this Russian legal tradition in a comparative perspective? Well, I think what is important to understand about the uniqueness of the Russian legal tradition is the problems that confronted the Russian state in terms of governing a dispersed and diverse population. And so Whereas Western nations, and of course you have to understand that Western nations haven't embodied the ideals of the rule of law themselves at various times yeah, during I mean, the history. We, so we so have it, our own. It, uh, we have challenges. our own problems, uh, <laughs> and and you can watch them day by day here uh, as well. But so, so I, I don't want to kind of you know say that Russia legal legal evolution is is different, but but it does have to address a unique set of problems. And whereas the British and the French empires were uh, diverse and colonial, uh, Russia had a contigu contiguous space that it had to govern. And so it had to address the question of empire within the question of law. And therefore, if you look at the Tsarist period, Russia never leads with notions of equality or liberty. The crucial objective of the Russian state is unity. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if I were to pick one adjective to put in front of the Russian state, it would be the unified state, which is articulated by various legal philosophers in the Tsarist period. And a unified state doesn't necessarily mean that there is simply one law or one policy. Uh, there are plenty of examples, as you mentioned, of wonderful debates that one can follow in the Tsarist period, in the Soviet period, and post-Soviet period that shows a multiplicity of viewpoints. But what is the essential feature of a unified state is that there can only be one sovereign. Mm -hmm. And as soon as different nationalities recognize the power of a single sovereign, then there's tremendous flexibility as to how the state can resolve legal issues. And the best example is that during the Tsarist period, when the Baltic states, Poland, Finland, uh, maintained its own system of civil law, mm -hmm. essentially, up until the end of the Tsarist period. There were attempts at Russification. 
their attempts to incorporate those independent legal systems into Russian law, but they never truly succeeded. Mm -hmm. So what makes Russia unique, I think, is how it has to confront maintaining and preserving this multinational empire with one, within one space. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they lead with the state mm -hmm. but and law supplements, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uniform. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be equal. Right. It's a classic example of what uh, the historian Jane Burbank talks about as the politics of difference, which is one of the key features of sort of imperial systems of rule. Right. Where if you're dealing with large spaces and diverse populations, the most effective way to manage them is to not try and impose a uniform set of rules or institutions for all of them, but to have some kind of negotiated framework for for managing them. Right. And, and the British Empire was no different, except yeah. that it, it, it could eventually cut off right. the elements of diversity and retreat to the United Kingdom. And uh, we're still witnessing, and yeah. now we're witnessing today, <laughs> yeah. uh, whether that retreat is still uh, possible. Right. But then, I mean, in the Russian case, when you get to the Soviet period, one of the things that seems different is that there was this attempt to try and create a uniform set of, of rules and policies for the entire USSR uh, in a way that was highly disruptive. Yes, the Soviet Union did take a different approach. And it also tried to present the Soviet state as a unified state, but with a common legal system. Now, it's not as if, but, but you have to also understand that it's not that Soviet law governed the Soviet Union. What the Soviet state did, for the most part, was it promulgated uh, general principles of law and then allowed the regions to implement them so that Ukraine had its own criminal code and mm -hmm. civil code, and Russia had its own civil code. And, and, and they all incorporated their own law. Hmm. And of course- What were the differences? I mean, was there an appreciable- No one's really kind of looked at what are the differences okay. yet. And that, that's an open area of research for all those graduate students out there. <laughs> I, I, I can't guarantee you it gets you tenure, but it is an yeah. interesting question. So that could be your next book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but, but so there, it's unclear to what extent there is diversity in terms of how- uh, each individual republics implemented these broader general codes. Mm -hmm. there, I, I've seen references to diversity in criminal law and so forth, uh, how they relate to custom, but no one's done this kind of systematic study. Okay. But the issue is that, again, the assumption was that none of this mattered, that the party was in control, mm -hmm. the party governed, the party controlled all the legal institutions, all the governing institutions. And so the fact that the Soviet Union theoretically decentralized and gave these republics legal rights, a constitution and mm -hmm. so forth, meant nothing until all of a sudden in 1980-89. It did. It meant everything. <laughs> and so what they unwittingly did was they provided these republics with all the basis of a legal state, yeah. including the right of secession. Sovereignty. And yeah, exactly. So, so all of a sudden, uh, at, at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, all these republics begin to assert these legal rights that were supposed to be uh, 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 essentially a legal fiction. And so again, the notion of a unified state fell apart on national principles. Mm -hmm. And it did so largely on the same way that the the provisional government fell apart in 1917.
that it wasn't able to maintain the, a level of force or present a mm-hmm. system of law that could integrate all the nationalities. And the republics and the national, national regions began going their own way. So e- even though the Soviet Union believed it was a fully integrated and unified state, it learned too late that the, it wasn't. Right. Yeah, and this is kind of the, the, the Terry Martin argument about how the, the Soviet Union, against its own inclinations, became an incubator for not only national identity but also statehood uh, on the part of the non-Russian republics of the Exactly. It, it was unintended. And, and I, I think Putin has never forgiven Lenin uh, for actually <laughs> yeah. uh, founding the Soviet state. Not to mention Gorbachev, Gorbachev for allowing yes, it to break yeah, apart. Allowed to break apart. But, but again, Gorbachev uh, unique, seemingly didn't understand the, the national basis yeah. of the Soviet state. Um, and again, it's, it's, you know, again, people focus on the ideology. But the Soviet Union was formed based on the 1922 Union Treaty of four republics creating a Soviet Union. And in 1991, three representatives of the heads of those republics Mm -hmm. met in a forest in Belarus and decided they had enough. Yeah. So it it was built on the nationality principle. Mm -hmm. Um, And decided they had enough and opted out on the basis of the existing laws. Exactly, exactly, which, which again, is, is surprising. But, but again, it, it shows that there are these legal principles that govern the Russian empire or the Russian space. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they break down, they break down catastrophically. Yeah. So let's take the story up until today. Uh, We talked a little bit about this attempt in the early 1990s to create a rule of law framework uh, in Russia with the 1993 constitution and the creation of a a real parliament. Talk us through how we've gone from that to, to where we are today, where the Duma is often regarded as little more than a than a rubber stamp and the the constitution is observed maybe in the breach more than anything else. Well, I, I mentioned that when they wrote the 1993 constitution, they included multiple concepts uh, as a path forward. And it was federalism. It was rule of law. Uh, it was uh, based on property rights, private law, and so forth. Um, and, and and a separation of powers. Uh, I think what, what what I'll start by explaining is the f- one of the fundamental flaws of the 1993 Constitution, because it emphasizes the notion of state power. State power appears in Article 10 of the Constitution, where it says state power is divided between executive, legislative, and judicial branches, and that each branch is autonomous. Mm-hmm. Now, to the average Westerner, especially looking for change, they'll look at the second half of that sentence and they'll say, here is a beginning of separation of powers. Let's see how it works. And that it's embodied in the Constitution. It sounds very yeah, Montesquieuian. Exactly. Except that it, the, 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 the sentence doesn't begin with a separation of powers. Mm-hmm. It begins with a notion of state power. And... And state power, as I emphasize, is always unified, mm-hmm. okay? And there are plenty of uh, clauses in the Constitution that talks about that unity of a unified system of state power, of a unified s- system of executive authority. Those are the provisions, I should add, that the Constitutional Court relied on 
uh, to uphold Putin's decision to appoint governors, that there was this notion of unity within the Constitution. But, so, so, but getting back to the argument about state power, state power is an essential component of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And Article 11 lists those institutions that exercise state power. And it, and it starts with the president, the president. okay, and go, goes on to the government, the executive, legislative, and so forth. Um, but you have to realize that the president is not part of the executive branch, mm -hmm. that the president is something of an island right. within the Constitution, that the executive branch is the government right. led, led by, by the, the prime, prime minister. minister. So all of a sudden, you create this source of power in the president. Um, and it, it, it has the potential of overriding all the other mm -hmm. principles within it. Um, Yeltsin was also not afraid to use state power when, right. it, when it suited his needs. Um, and one can only guess what would have happened if he had been healthy during his presidency as mm -hmm. opposed to, to not being so, how he would have interpreted state power. Right. Uh, but Putin... From the very beginning, from his millennium message mm -hmm. in 1999, understands the notion of state power and says, that's what I'm going to assert if I've, if, as prime minister. And two days later, he becomes president. Right. Vertical velocity. Exactly. And, and, and that's, again, the power vertical is something that has existed since Peter the Great. I mean, it is the mechanism by which the state transfers orders from the center to the regions. Yeah. It has always existed. Um, and it is always top-down. It doesn't allow for bottom-up participation. And so when Putin restores this power vertical, he again is restoring something that has deep Russian roots and is, an, a, 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 and is the standard way by which the state trans, transmits legality, mm -hmm. its rules to the regions. Right. And, and, and what's traditional about it is, of course— it's top down. It's not bottom up, and that becomes what's missing yeah. in Russian law. Right, because I guess if you think about the comparative perspective, and Constitution in the United States, for example, was passed very much with the idea of limiting state power and protecting individuals from the intrusions of state power. Right. Uh, so in Russia, it sounds like you're starting from a very different set of first principles. What's interesting about the Russian Constitution, the 93 Constitution, of course, is that it includes civil rights and civil liberties. And indeed, the most progressive part of the Constitution is part one and part two of the, of the, of the foundation of the, of the Russian state and the rights and freedoms of individual citizens. Um, but they have largely become aspirational mm -hmm. and are still aspirational because of the power of the state. Uh, Putin, since his during his third term, has gone out of his way to limit freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and so forth. He's he's those those are the things he fears the most. Right. Um, and, and are those things explicitly guaranteed in the constitution? Absolutely, they're absolutely guaranteed in the constitution. But there also has been a unique metamorphosis in what the the power structures want to uphold within the constitution, so that. If you look at speeches by Valery Zorkin, mm -hmm. the head of the Constitutional, Constitutional Court, Yuri uh, Chaika, the, the prosecutor general, and other leading officials, uh, what they emphasize is not the civil liberties in the Constitution, but the social rights in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. They're also present. 
And the social rights in terms of of right right to housing, uh-huh. right to education, yeah. right to pensions, et cetera, et cetera. medical care, medical care, et cetera. Yeah. They're all there too. And what they've done is they've promoted themselves as being the defenders of the social rights, mm-hmm. which are direct, directly linked to the Soviet period. Yeah, they are defenders of the social rights within the Constitution, mm-hmm. and that's what they emphasize. So that when Chaika talks about the success of the procracy. He invariably talks about uh, handling citizens' appeals, dealing with pensions, housing, Uh these types of issues, Um, and insists that uh, one of the important responsibilities of the procracy is to defend the rights and liberties of Russian citizens. But he interprets that as the social rights and not the civil liberties. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the Russian judicial system. Um, What role do Russian courts play? What is their relationship to this larger framework of of state power? The Russian court system has been transformed from the Soviet system. So that if you look kind of at the big picture, one can see positive changes. Uh, Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia has established a constitutional court uh, that while deferential to Putin and the state, regularly issues opinions that calls for revisions of law and tries to uphold at least judicial processes related to the civil liberties in the first two sections of the Constitution. Um, At certain times when a political decision has had to be made, uh, the Constitutional Court has made a political decision uh, and has not erred uh, in in making that decision, starting with the Chechnya case when the court returned in 1994 uh, through the most recent decision to allow the Constitutional Court to overrule decisions by the European Court of Human Rights. Mm-hmm. What was the Chechnya case? So the Chechnya case was a case that was brought, the first major case, political case, brought uh, after the, the 1993 events. Mm-hmm. And Yeltsin essentially suspended the Constitutional Court for the 1993 events, you mean the shooting of Parliament? Parliament, and, yes, yeah. the White House, right. And Yeltsin suspended the, the uh, Constitutional Court for 18 months and brought it back with a, with a changed jurisdiction, but nevertheless kept the institution mm-hmm. and its ability to address specific constitutional, court, uh, constitutional issues and interpret the Constitution. Um, and so in the Chechen case, several deputies from the Duma raised the objection about why hadn't Yeltsin followed existing legislation when ordering troops to Chechnya. He hadn't followed the law on the state of emergency. He hadn't followed the law on the use of armed force. He hadn't done anything. He'd just simply gone ahead. Mm -hmm. But this was a case that was brought by the Duma. Brought by the Duma deputies, right. Um, And so the Constitutional Court was faced with a, a real problem because if it ruled against Yeltsin, there was every expectation that the Constitutional Court probably would not exist any longer. Uh, so it crafted a very Marbury, Marbury versus Madison type solution <laughs> where it found the state in violation of certain human rights and certain protections of journalists, but it didn't overturn the actions of the state mm-hmm. in terms of deciding to... Uh, uh, in, uh, invade Chechnya. 
or try to reincorporate Chechnya right. back into the Russian Federation. And what is, is, in retrospect, really fascinating about that particular decision is that it followed a tradition in Russian history uh, in the sense that rules do not interfere with questions about the integrity of the Russian state. And they didn't, the Constitutional Court basically said that as president, mm -hmm. Yeltsin had the authority to preserve the integrity and the unity of the Russian state, and this legislation was not that relevant to it. Right, which is not, again, particularly unique to Russia. Absolutely not. Abraham Absolutely Lincoln not. suspending habeas corpus during exactly. the Civil War. He only began the Civil War by violating the Constitution, I think, at least three times. Um, so, so yes, it, it, but that decision allowed the Constitutional Court to continue. And even though it's not overly confrontational, it does mm -hmm. still defend some of the civil liberties mm -hmm. in the Constitution. Right. And, it, it requir and it requires the state to amend the Constitution. Right. So the court is not acting just as an adjunct of the executive. No, it isn't. But, but it knows when – it can read the political tea leaves as well uh, when that occurs. Um, you also have uh, justice of the peace courts, the lower courts, mm -hmm. uh, that Kathy, Kath, Professor Catherine Henley from the University of Wisconsin has studied extensively. And when she looked at these kind of low-level disputes – she did not find a highly politicized court. She did not find a, um, a court that kind of still uses the old Soviet euphemism of telephone law, you know, <laughs> trying to find out what the right. correct decision is. Call the Kremlin and the Kremlin. have them tell you over the exactly. telephone what the she, decision should she be. She found a court that was acting independently, uh, that had a lot of time pressures on it to resolve these quick cases quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and these are like low-level property low disputes. Low-level property disputes, traffic accidents, you know. Uh, she gives this great example of uh, leaky apartment roofs and so forth. It's, it's all the kind of everyday disputes that you think. Mm -hmm. um, and they are handled independently uh, and, and relatively quickly uh, without causing great uh, unrest, as it were. Uh, and the third kind of, of, of new area of, of judicial uh, jurisprudence is in the commercial courts, um, again, which act relatively independently uh, handle commercial disputes amongst uh, business corporations uh, with one crucial caveat. Uh, when they wrote the 1993 Constitution, the commercial courts had their own high court, kind of Supreme Court, uh, which regularly ruled against the state. And uh, Putin, when he returned to power in 2012, I think one or two years later, basically decided that he'd had enough of the Supreme the higher arbitrage court, the Supreme Court of, of the arbitrage court, and he dissolved it, uh, thereby meaning that commercial law didn't have this kind of high court that was setting an agenda. And he stuck the commercial courts under the Supreme Court uh, and therefore had much less focus and independence in terms of setting its agenda and actually being a, a, a beacon mm -hmm. of change of, of, of rule of law reforms. But, but so you have this court system that has changed, um, that challenges the state, that has allowed for a development of private law that didn't exist at all in the, the inheritance, inheritance, property, property law, contracts. Right, contracts, exactly. You know, instead of blot and exchange of favors, you actually have today an exchange of enforceable promises with various caveats, but that's what mm -hmm. you have, and that's much different than existed right. under the Soviet period. So among those caveats, we've talked about the 
dominance of, of state power and the, the deference of the courts to state power. Um, another issue that often comes up in journalistic discussions of, of Russian law, of course, is corruption. Um, can you talk about the way that the courts are involved in corrupt business activities, the way that various criminal actors try to use the courts for their own ends and how effective the courts are at maintaining their independence from, for lack of a better term, the underworld? Well, obviously, we've seen in the last month or so uh, the the deficiencies of the Russian criminal justice system. What I talked about before was really the civil law and commercial law systems. Uh, Russian criminal law, uh, despite the passage of a, of a rather liberal criminal procedure code in 2001, uh, hasn't substantially changed. To the extent hasn't substantially changed from the Soviet period. Soviet period. To the extent that Russian criminal defendants are convicted, if they go to trial, if they're indicted, mm-hmm. at a 99.4% rate. Right. Uh, we have a high rate in the United States as well. Again, don't don't think that yeah. the defendants have, have have necessarily a fair shake. Well, in the U.S., they usually get plea bargain regardless. Exactly. Well, they've introduced plea bargaining, and so that's another way by which um, they keep their conviction rates high. But you know, it, it essentially means that the judge in a criminal trial is there to rubber stamp what the investigators mm-hmm. and the prosecutors have already brought. And judges are evaluated based on their conviction rates and their uh, uh, o- the rate of, over- of of overturning cases by appellate courts. Mm-hmm. So judges don't have life tenure, and or they do have life program. tenure, but nevertheless, they still, if they want to be promoted, uh-huh. if they want to work their way up the criminal ju- the, the judicial system, okay, um, they find themselves with these informal constraints, and so they so so that. If you look for acquittals, they occur in the investigatory process. By the, if, if, if by the time it goes to court. By the time it goes to court. You, you know, I asked a, 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 a lawyer once, what do you tell your clients? I said, well, they have a 1% chance of being acquitted. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what they have. It, it, it isn't looking very good if they haven't been able to dismiss the charges mm-hmm. uh, in this preliminary and in the investigatory process. <laughs> what we've seen in terms of corruption, again, there, there, there are plenty of examples in different types of corruption um, in the 1990s as opposed to the 2000s. Um, but, but you still have the perception that at least in these criminal trials, judges are, 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 are not independent, mm-hmm. uh, that they simply serve the state. And you also have, and this is where the Calvi case has refocused attention, mm-hmm. the ability to take what is essentially a commercial dispute um, and to use the criminal justice system to bring criminal charges, mm-hmm. thereby placing the business person uh, in jail in preliminary detention, uh, as opposed to forcing this to go to the commercial courts where it could be resolved. In other words, they criminalize commercial, commercial disputes. disputes. And this is one of the major sources of corruption today. Uh, Mr. Calvi, I don't know if he has a chance to look around. But he is not alone. The Ombudsman for Business Affairs talks about thousands of cases like Mr. Calvi's mm-hmm. of businessmen being charged criminally for commercial disputes and being stuck in jail. And this is an essential kind of feature of, of corporate rating 
Whereas the longer you sit, the more likely you are to give up your assets. Right, because you want to get out already. Because you want to get out already, exactly. So it's, it's, not, it's not an irrational feeling. Um, and, and this is, of course, one of the primary sources of corruption. I think that's useful context when talking about the Calvi case because a lot of the commentary in the press here has been, oh, you know, this guy's being taken hostage as part of a U.S.-Russia political dispute. But I think you're right. When you step back and sort of look at it in the context of the operation of the Russian criminal justice system, the way that business disputes are settled, what makes it unique is the guy is American, not that he was yeah. jailed and arrested for this. And, and what makes it unique is – the same day they're talking about the importance of foreign investment yeah, at the right. Sochi Economic Forum, right. uh, they're, hand, they, they're taking the leading, one of the leading Western investors mm -hmm. and sticking them in jail. Not a very good advertisement to attract investment into right. the but Russian Federation. But also an indication that the ability of the state to influence the criminal courts, there are other forces at work here. Exactly. And what's interesting is, of course, Putin, who has on numerous occasions criticized this process. Um, in fact, in his most recent State of the Nation after Mr. Calvi's address, he again criticized this misuse of, of the criminal justice system for commercial disputes. Uh, he is reluctant to intervene in this dispute. Right. And, 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 the and also hasn't done anything about it, the systemic problem. Exactly. He, exactly. He, he mentions it every year and it continues. And that's because the system that Putin has built you know, can only be maintained by allowing these administrative judicial officials to feed off the wealth of business, essentially. That they're, they're not entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. uh, but they're kind of um, entrepreneurs in how they apply the criminal law. And this is how they get, you know, this is, this is the Magnitsky case. They get their money, they, 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 you know, mm -hmm. the tax officials, they, they break Magnitsky, they send their money abroad, and that's how the system works. And Putin can't do anything about that because he needs those security services, this coercive force, mm -hmm. to maintain the unity and control. So when he so has the same to people who are benefiting from this corrupt system in the criminal justice arm of the state are also the ones who are the pillar of the existing political order and of the power vertical. Oh, yeah. And so, so you know, if if you know the power vertical is situational. You know, during an election, during a crisis, he expects it to fall into line. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time. Exactly. They're, they're, they're kind yeah. of free agents. They get to do what they want to do. And of course, there's no accountability from below. Uh, there is accountability from Sounds above. Sounds like feudalism, actually. Well, <laughs> an advanced stage of it. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but there is accountability. What's interesting is the number of politicians that have been arrested on charges of corruption as well. Yeah. Starting with the former Minister for Economic Development, Mr. Ulikayev, but plenty of governors and mm -hmm. regional party, uh, regional officials and so forth. If you pick up the Russian newspapers, there's a constant discussion about corruption and the state's punishing corruption, um, and yet it has no impact. Right. And there was a poll that was conducted a few weeks ago uh, where basically people said that these corruption trials are all part of internal bureaucratic disputes and really doesn't, don't reflect kind of a fight against corruption. Yeah. And in fr quite frankly, the, the institution that Putin has named to lead the fight against the corruption is the prosecutor's office. And again, all these cases couldn't really happen 
without the connivance of the prosecutors. Exactly. So it, it is really putting the fox in charge of the hen house to think mm-hmm. that the proxy is going to be the institution that is going to end corruption in the Russian Federation. Right. Well, and there's a certain irony here too, which is that I don't know about Michael Calvi, but at least a lot of the state officials who are being arrested in these cases, no doubt are corrupt. Um, but that mostly just ensures that they that they have this vulnerability, that they can be arrested and charged legitimately with committing corrupt acts. They're not being charged because they're corrupt. They're being held as part of business disputes or political disputes or whatever, whatever else. But the justification for it is the fact that they are actually corrupt. Yes. The, one, Mr. Ulukayev appears to have been set up very nicely by Mr. Sechin. Yeah, yeah the, and, and, the basket I, I, of sausages. Sausages and suitcases. I don't, I don't suggest you actually accept any uh, suitcases from Mr. Sechin. Yeah. Um, but no doubt they all are in one way or another presiding over these, the, the system that feeds on corruption, that is sustained on corruption. And therefore, of course, they don't have a defense. And every time they try to put on a defense – no one really believes it right? because everyone believes uh, that these government officials, with the exception of Putin in many ways, mm-hmm. are That they're implicated in Yes, this. exactly. And, and there would be very little sympathy. Just like there was very little sympathy for Khodorkovsky when he was yeah. indicted as well. Right. The interesting challenge facing this system now is that Putin only has technically under the Constitution until 2024 to continue to preside over the system. Yeah, it'll be an interesting question to see how that issue gets resolved, exactly. whether it's within the framework of the existing constitution or not. Or not. So so there, there are a variety of ways by which one could think he might um, pursue it. He could try to amend the constitution. Right, which was done under Medvedev to increase the length Into of the, the presidential length, but, term. But it, it's, it's the, it's the, he would have to amend a different provision, yeah. uh, the provision about the right to serve no more than more two, than two successive, consecutive terms. consecutive terms in power. Um, Putin wasn't willing to change it last time. I don't know whether he wants to change it this time. He could propose writing a new constitution. Yeah. But he's never he's always kind of said that this is a fine constitution and he doesn't really want, want to, to tamper with it. To tamper with it. Yeah. Well, once you open that Pandora's box, exactly. then you don't know where it's gonna lead. A third option would be to rely on kind of the state council, a kind of mm-hmm. uh, a, a non official part of the constitution transfer significant state power to that body mm-hmm. and regulatory oversight and diminish the president. But, but kind of creating alternative institutions mm-hmm. that can rule, that will, will, will exercise, again, the, the notion of state power. So control the security yeah. services, state corporations, the media, the economy. You know, if enough power is transferred to that type mm-hmm. of body, then maybe that institution can, can govern the country. Putin can be head of that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he's already served four years as prime minister, i.e. not being president and still maintaining control over the country. So he could pursue that avenue. And the final avenue is uh, the treaty process. Yeah, with Belarus. With Belarus, exactly. And and kind of, you know, they are actually a unified state even today, Mm -hmm. even if they have no institutions to uh, govern that unified state. But if that is an avenue... And Putin can convince Lukashenko. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder to, what to go along with it. Alexander and, Lukashenko and, and, thinks about I'm that. Sure idea. He, I'm sure he carries a heavy <laughs> price uh, to do so. Uh, then that's a fourth option mm-hmm. of kind of creating a new a new nation, as it were, 
and then putting Putin in charge of that. Yeah. And that is another way that he might be able to get around the limitations mm-hmm. under the current constitution. I suppose there's also the the Deng Xiaoping option of becoming the head of the was it the the Moscow Bridge Club. Yes, yes. <laughs> and 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 again what was fascinating to learn in between 2008 and 2012 is that everyone calls the constitution super presidential. Mm-hmm. But Putin ruled quite nicely for 4 years as prime minister. As prime minister, he didn't he didn't have to be president. So it again it just depends on your ability mm-hmm. to control the coercive power of the state right. to maintain yourself at the top of the pyramid. Yeah. Well, I think what it says is that it's not that the constitution is super presidential as much as Russia is under-institutionalized and that the rules of power remain to a significant degree informal and defined by individuals and their relationships. Yes, but 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 there, but the, but it also means that there's only one institution that they've invented so far that can govern this territory, and that is the state. All right, Will. Thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, thank you for joining us. That's it for our show today. Uh, There is a link to Will's bio in the show notes and to the book, which you can purchase online or at your local independent bookstore of choice. For those of you who haven't already, please do, of course, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, uh, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you are not an iTunes user, you can check us out on Google Play or SoundCloud. Also, please remember to keep sending us your mailbag questions. Uh, We'll do another mailbag segment here soon. You can email them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. You can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, We are at CSIS Russia, and I am at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, finally, uh, last but not least, a big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks, uh, including our producer, research associate, and program manager, Cyrus Newland, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Das Vidanya. Mm-hmm.